This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. so good to see you guys. Um, that's a longer video than normally we would play as a bumper or even as um, sort of a, an, an introduction or advertisement to something that we're supporting um, as a church. But I know that uh, Orchard Africa as a ministry, as a place where God is at work, is uh, probably new to many of us. And we want to take time to give you a little of the, the backstory about what God is doing there. Um, for, for those of you, and we're hoping all of you, uh, support what God's doing and what He's going to do this next year through the Greater Impact Special Offering, giving uh, above and beyond what you regularly give to the work of Christ uh, through the church throughout the year. Um, a portion of that will go to help support uh, Orchard Africa as we um, continue in conversations with them about what a, a longer-term partnership uh, could look like, um, being involved in what God's doing in, in one of the places in the world that is largely forgotten, that southern tip of Africa, not just, uh, not just South Africa where uh, Orchard Africa's work started, but surrounding countries, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and others. Um, it's a remarkable ministry. It's a remarkable uh, work of God there. Um, uh, a lot of us are familiar with Cape Town maybe or Johannesburg, but there's, there's a whole other part um, of South Africa. So um, I hope you'll give and give generously uh, to the Greater Impact Special Offering throughout this month and next month. A couple of things just by, by way of letting you um, know things and reminding you of things before we jump in uh, this morning. We will be, by the way, in case you want to begin uh, turning there in your Bibles, we'll be in Romans chapter 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5. Uh, I want to remind you, come back tonight for the choir Christmas special at 6.30. You're going to want to be here. That's going to be great. Come early at 6. There'll be a string quartet, snacks, other things going on out in the main foyer here. That will be where everyone enters and exits. These doors will be shut. Um, so I encourage you to come at 6 if you can. Uh, also be praying for, for John and their family. Tori came rushing in late this morning. Uh, there was a, uh, an eruption of sickness as is uh, common sometimes in homes with little ones last night. John is really sick as well. And so uh, Jake and I were waking up and texting uh, through the, the five o'clock, six, six o'clock hour uh, with John. There's a lot of moving pieces that we just don't think about uh, when, when a platform person has to, has to be out. And so Tori came scrambling in here about 9 a.m. with an infant in one arm and a guitar in the other um, to sort of fill in. So uh, be praying for them. But the Christmas choir special will be uh, tonight as well as Christmas Eve service uh, 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve. So we'd love for you guys to join us then. I do want to make you aware of this. On Friday morning, Tanya Pereira's sister um, was injured badly in a tragic car accident and passed away on Friday. So I want to ask you, um, as a church family, um, to be lifting up Carl and Tanya and their extended family um, as they uh, seek God's will in the coming days and as they uh, are in desperate need of God's comfort and his guidance uh, and for him to, to hold them through this time. There's a lot involved in that. So um, I put that before you and ask you to be uh, lifting them up each day uh, in prayer. 
All right, this morning we turn to the third week in a four-week series where we've been talking about aspects of the Christmas story that some find difficult to believe, difficult to believe. And this morning we come to um, the, the biblical reality of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, or rather the, the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. Both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew tell us that Jesus was uniquely conceived by God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. This speaks to his deity and his humanity in the incarnation. It speaks to um, his sinlessness as a human being taking upon the sins of man on the cross, dying for us in our place that our sins might be forgiven and his righteousness might be imputed to us as sinners who place our faith in him. And yet, over the last 100 years or so, right up until this morning, until now, some have sought to uh, undermine the significance of the virgin birth and doubt it in their post-enlightenment sort of modern arrogance. There's this idea uh, that, that we've got to see the, the virgin conception of Jesus as, as a kind of myth created by the early followers of Jesus. But I'm here to say this this morning, the, the virgin birth of Christ is not a matter that we simply uh, take or leave. It's a critical part of the doctrine of redemption. It's a critical part of why we celebrate what we celebrate at this time of year, why hundreds of millions of people around the world are coming together, worshiping, lifting one another up, celebrating this time of year. It's a historical fact that gives great confidence and joy to those who believe it. Whether or not we, with our limited minds and fallen minds, understand it. God has not called us to understand it. He's called us to believe it. If there is a God who can create all that exists now and hold it firmly in place through the power of His Word and will, there are going to be aspects of what he does and how he does it that you and I simply do not understand. I mean, let's just step back and be honest. Who in here would say that you achieved total mastery of every subject you studied in school? Right? That, that nothing, nothing you studied and no part of anything you studied was hard for you. That's just human stuff. That's small ball compared to what God can do and has done. And I submit to you that, that in the shadow behind all of Paul's theology was this acknowledgement that there was something so very different about Jesus Christ that began with the very way he was consumed in Mary's womb. Let's look this morning at a passage that you uh, would probably not think of off the top of your head as a Christmas passage, but we're going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and we're going to see how it connects us to the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, we're going to, in a sense, jump into the deep end of the pool here, right? So uh, let's, let's set aside some of our, our lazy intellectual drift, and let's put our thinking hats on and open our hearts and ask God to speak to us. I want to pray for us before we jump in here to Romans chapter 5. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, speak to us now as we gather in your name. 
Would you send your spirit to open your word to us? God, would you stir again the affections of our hearts? God, revive in us a sense of wonder, trust, delight, and amazement at what you've done in and through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that where there is darkness, your light would pierce through. God, where there is pain, the glory of your goodness, the strength and depth and width of your compassion and love would bring healing. Speak to us this morning. May you be glorified. May the Lord Jesus be magnified. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, let's look at Paul comparing, uh, sort of paralleling Adam and Jesus Christ in these verses. I'll read all the way through the passage, and then we'll come back and we'll sort of bump along. I'll highlight a few things, but we're not so much going to work through this expositionally this morning as we're going to, to use it as a place where we see some unique things about Paul's thinking around the conception of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 12. Therefore, therefore. Now, in verse 11, Paul has just said... Um, that, that we boast in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He's saying sin has, sin has torn us from God. Sin has alienated us from God. Sin has, uh, has wrecked our relationship with God. And through faith in Christ, by the grace of God, we've now been reconciled. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. And then you'll notice there's, uh, in your Bible there may be a parenthesis that starts, there may be a dash or something like that. Because Paul says just as, but he doesn't give us uh, the other half of that, so that, or even so, it's almost like he says, well, I better work this out some. You know, I've made a statement here that sin entered the world through one man and that death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And then Paul pauses a bit and kind of works this out before picking it back up in verse 18. He goes on in verse 13 and says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Paul is saying, uh, Paul is saying obviously, that before the Ten Commandments, before the law of God was given and fleshed out, as we find in Exodus and Leviticus, even before then, obviously sin was present in the world. You simply have to look at the flood account and God's judgment there to realize that. He's saying, yet not in the same way was it counted against people. Verse 14, he says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. He says, you don't have to sin exactly like Adam did. You don't have to specifically break a specific commandment of God given to you as Adam did to be a sinner in Adam's likeness. Verse 15, but the gift, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin 
and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses or many sins and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, and then he goes back and and sort of restates with another just as. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, the law was given so that you and I, so that human beings might know we are, in a sense, law breakers. All right? Where there is no law, it's hard to break a law. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Could anyone else say amen? Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. What Paul is saying here and what he makes explicit in chapter 6 is you cannot out God's capacity for grace and forgiveness. There's no one sin, no series of sins, no season of sin that's so big that God can't push through that to you. That God's grace and his desire and capacity for forgiveness doesn't abound all the more. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What, what Paul is doing here is referring to Jesus in a parallel fashion to Adam. A parallel, but Jesus is a parallel of supremacy. Behind Paul's comparison, uh, comparison here of Adam and Jesus is a theology of uniqueness regarding the origin of Adam and the birth of Jesus. Let me say that again and then we'll work it out just a little bit. Behind Paul's comparison in chapter 5 here, and you'll find this kind of throughout Pauline theology in different places in different books. Behind Paul's comparison is a theology of uniqueness regarding the origin of Adam and the birth of Jesus. Both, in a sense, Paul is saying, are are covenant heads of humanity, representatives whose actions have consequences for others. When Paul says in verse 12, let's go back to verse 12, when Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. I want to tell you what Paul's not saying and then tell you what he is saying. Paul is not saying that death comes as a result of sin and death comes to all people because all of us individually sin. We most certainly all individually sin. But that's not the point Paul's making right here. He's he's made that in Romans 3 and he makes that in other places. What Paul is saying is that all of us were bound up in the original sin of Adam. He's saying there is a universality of sin and death now. Sin is universal. 
We know this. We know this. The children of God know it. Agnostics know it. Atheists know it. Proponents of other religion and other world philosophies know this. We all know that something's gone terribly wrong in the world, do we not? We know this. We know that things are not right in, in me and things are not right in the world as we see them. And I submit to you that only, only biblical Christianity can answer the question, why? Why is the world in the case that it is? And what can be done about it? Why are you the way that you are? And what can be done about it for you? There's a, universal, a universality of sin. There's also a universality of death. We all die. We're all going to die. This is simply part of created existence. Hebrews chapter 9 says it's appointed to all of us once to die. To live is, in a sense, to prepare to die. This is part of it. There's a universality of it because we are caught up in Adam's original sin. Now, this idea of Adam and Christ being covenant heads of humanity, representatives whose actions have consequences for others, would be an impossible tenet of Paul's theology without the virgin birth of Jesus. Because, follow me here, Jesus, without that, without this virgin conception, without, as Luke tells us and Matthew tells us, the work of God the Father through God the Spirit to bring about the humanity of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Without it, Jesus would have been implicated in the sin of Adam, just as the rest of humanity, right? Jesus would have been born into this condition of sin, just as you were and just as I was. Had God not, through the Holy Spirit, saw to the supernatural conception of the Son, in the Mary of womb, Jesus would stand within the corruption of Adam's original sin. No matter what he did or didn't do in life, he would still stand within the universality of sin and death. We know that some die before they even have the chance to sin themselves because we are bound up in the original sin of Adam. Now, let me say this. Let me summarize because I think we can all agree um, that verses 12 through 21, they're, they're a meaty chunk of Scripture, aren't they? Yes, right? Yeah, this is not a little story that you teach, um, you know, in first grade Sunday school. This is a complex, theological, dense uh, portion of Scripture and profound. But let's, let's summarize it this way. Just as Adam, just as Adam, through his actions brought sin and death, and became the representative head of the old race, the sinners. How much more so has Jesus Christ, through his supernatural birth, sinless life, and atoning death and resurrection, brought salvation and life and become the representative head of a new race? the redeemed. There's a sense in which in Paul's mind, you and I are either under Adam or under Christ. We're in Adam or in Christ. And part of what's going on in Paul's mind 
is the uniqueness of both Adam and Jesus, but Jesus, how much more so? Let's talk through this a little bit. I just want to give you some, some very basic ways to think about the significance of the virgin birth that is behind Paul's writing and behind his theology in this passage as he's comparing Adam and Jesus. The first is simply this, that the, that the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Jesus is a reminder to us that salvation is a supernatural work of God. Your salvation, my salvation, the, the bringing of the possibility of salvation to a broken and sinful humanity trapped in our own wickedness, dead Scripture would say, in our own sin and trespass, is a supernatural work of God. The very comparison here between Adam. Do you, do you remember what Genesis says about how Adam came into being? God simply created him out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. And he, came, he became a human being made in the image of God. A supernatural beginning for Adam. Would you not say? I mean, what else have you made from dust at your house? Right? I mean, have you fashioned dust into anything else and given it life? It's a supernatural work. And part of what Paul is saying here is just as Adam, the first man, stood as a supernatural creation of God, and I want to be careful here. I don't want you to mess up what I'm saying here. So Jesus Christ stands as a supernatural conception through the Holy Spirit of the eternal Son of God as man, conceived without the seed of a man. No sperm involved. Think of it this way. Just as Adam came into being through a supernatural act of the triune God, so too, in a supernatural act of God, through the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not that the Son of God was created. The Son of God, if you go back to Genesis, was present at the very beginning, coexistent, co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But He becomes a man through the supernatural act of God. That's part of what we're called to remember during this time, that God has acted supernaturally in human history. These are facts. This is news you announce, right? This is not a, an idea or a, 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 maybe an invitation to, to a better way of living or a suggestion for you to follow. It is a historical fact of God's breaking into our world. Second, it is a reminder. The virgin birth of Jesus, virgin conception of Jesus is a reminder that salvation is fully a gift of God's grace. Salvation is fully a gift of God's grace. Church, you can't earn it. You can't maintain it through your good behavior. You can't impress God by being nice. New Testament scholar, the late Leon Morris, who died in 2006, he was a, a really exceptional uh, Pauline scholar, uh, worked and lived in Australia, said this, Adam's sin involved us all in a situation of sin and death from which there is no escape other than in Christ. I love the way he says that. It, it helps you feel the weight of it. Adam's sin involved us all in a situation of sin and death from which there is no escape other than in Christ. We're all bound up in the sin and death 
initiated by Adam. But, but for the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 15 through 17 again. Verses 15 through 17 of Romans 5. But the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is not like the sin. It's not like the the violation. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Do you hear the fullness and the abundance of Paul's language here about the grace of God? It's, it's interesting. You, you and I can certainly go too far in one direction or another, but it's very hard to go too far on this subject of God's grace. Rightly understood and rightly preached and taught, the grace of God does not lead to licentious living. The grace of God leads to full liberty in the Spirit of God. It leads to the affections of our hearts being stirred toward a God who has loved us in spite of who we are who has given all necessary, all that is necessary, the work is done, not only for our redemption and salvation, but for our sanctification as we walk and cooperate with the Holy Spirit and we're changed day by day, year by year, more and more into the image of the Son of God. Theologian Millard Erickson says this, that salvation does not come, salvation does not come through human effort, nor is it a human accomplishment. So also the virgin birth points to the helplessness of humans to initiate even the first step in the process. Even the first step in the process. You and I were unable to initiate. There's nothing we could do. We were, as Scripture declares us to be, dead in our sins and our transgressions. Let me read this again. Salvation does not come through human effort, nor is it a human accomplishment. So also the virgin birth points to the helplessness of humans to initiate even the first step in this process. The coming of Jesus Christ as a newborn baby conceived under the power of the Holy Spirit was not only supernatural, it was fully a gift of God's grace. So a couple of reminders there. It is also a couple, uh, it is also the evidence of a couple of things about the virgin birth. Let's hear this. Um, the virgin birth is the evidence of the uniqueness of Jesus the Savior. He's not like Muhammad. He's not like Buddha. He's not like anyone else that has ever lived. He is parallel to Adam, yet so much more, which is what Paul says. I said earlier that um, Jesus was a parallel of Adam in this passage, but a parallel of supremacy. For Paul, both are certainly representative heads. But Jesus is the decisive one, right? They're not competing powers in a sense. It's like when we think about uh, the principalities of darkness or evil, Satan, the devil, um, and the power that he has. It's not equal with God. He doesn't win. He doesn't get to be above God. God is the decisive one. Christ's power stands alone. He is unique in a way similar to Adam, yet beyond Adam. And without a virgin conception, virgin birth, this simply could not be true. He would be all man and none of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that as our Lord's divine nature had no mother, as our Lord's divine nature 
had no mother, so his human nature had no father. Remarkable statement, isn't it? As our Lord's divine nature had no mother, so his human nature had no father. That's part of why he can be God with us. That's central to what we celebrate this time of year. Matthew, quoting Isaiah 7. Remember when the angel comes to Jacob, um, Joseph? Joseph is rightly uh, a little disturbed by this. This is unusual. But can I submit to you that if you can believe in the resurrection, you can believe in the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. And, and somehow we look back in our, in our sort of chronological snobbery, thinking how much we know um, and how gifted we are, and think, well, we wouldn't believe in that silly stuff like they did. Folks, they knew how babies were made, right? Mary knew how babies were made. Joseph knew how babies were made. Joseph was shocked. He was stunned. Mary was shocked and stunned. And yet, through the help of God and the sweet leading of God, they came to accept this. And as the angel is unpacking some of this to Joseph, so Joseph can accept what's going on, even if he can't fully understand it. The angel quotes Isaiah 7, the virgin will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which we know means what? God with us. God with us. In a sense, a kind of fulfillment, if you will, or full fulfillment of Leviticus 26 where God says to his people in verse 12, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. And this uniqueness, this beautiful, mysterious, powerful, supernatural thing that God did in the life of young Mary, some 2,000 years ago, this, uh, in, in certain ways, this uniqueness is imputed to those who place their trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Here, the Apostle John saying in the Gospel of John something about this in chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He, that is Jesus, came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who did receive him, and there's a warning in here we find throughout Jesus' own teaching. His own didn't receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now look at this clarifying statement of John here. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will but born of God. Do you hear some of that supernatural uniqueness that we find in Jesus Christ being imputed to those who believe in His name by God, who receive a second birth, not of natural descent, not of human decision or of the desire of a husband, but as those born directly of God, through the Spirit and the power of God. Church, this is what we're talking about when we talk about regeneration. 
regeneration, that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and gives you a new heart. There's a new birth that takes place in you as God in his goodness and his sovereign power opens your heart, your eyes, your mind to the truth of the gospel and you believe. It is all of God. Lastly, I'll simply say this. One last thing we see, at least that we're going to talk about this morning, in the virgin conception and birth of Jesus is the evidence of God's power and sovereignty over the created order. Just because you and I don't understand how certain things work doesn't make it untrue. There's a real arrogance to modern Westerners now. And there has been for quite some time where we believe we are so advanced and we understand so much that if we can't make sense of it, it must not be true. Do you want to work? I mean, honestly, truly, do you want to worship a God and throw yourself in times of tragedy and pain and helplessness on a God that you can fully understand? That's so small that your limited brain that fits in your tiny head some of your heads tinier than others. That didn't come out right. <laughs> Do you want a God that, that, that your fallen, small human mind with your limited capacity can fully understand? That's not a God I want to worship and not a God I want to trust with my life. His power and His sovereignty reign over the created order. He designed the world to work as it does. And yet there are times and have been times throughout human history where God intervenes in unique and supernatural ways in nature and creation. Certainly, the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, would reign supreme among those examples. As the band comes back up here this morning and we um, we prepare our hearts and our minds to respond to God, to reflect in worship. I want to leave you with this quote from Rebecca McLaughlin, whose book we gave out a few weeks ago and whose um, flow and title we've taken for this series. McLaughlin says that when we contemplate that the eternal God out there with the power to create billions of stars and planets, would become a tiny baby down here, born to live with us and die with us because he loves us. The only right thing to do is worship. The only right response is worship. The only natural outflowing of that truth is worship. That's what... The gospel produces in the minds and hearts of those who've heard it and by God's grace believed it. This is the joy we have, right? This is the joy we have, that the God out there became a tiny baby down here and lived our life and died our death demonstrating for us the supreme love of God for us and all his creation. 
This is the joy we have. This is the message we declare. This is the song we sing. Let's stand now. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.